Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'd like to welcome you for joining our class today, whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or in our Zoom classroom, because today we're going to be exploring Chapter 3, which is titled Nibbana, What is Enlightenment, or Nibbana. We're in this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, and we're moving each Sunday into a new chapter. So if you've been reading or you plan to read, you're going to see that this chapter three really starts to lay the foundation of what enlightenment is or what is Nibbana so that you can more clearly understand the goal of what you're working to accomplish in Buddhist teachings and on this path to enlightenment. And then the rest of the book really starts to just lay out for you very clearly of how to progress to attain this mental state of enlightenment. So what today is all about is helping you to really deeply understand what we're talking about when we describe enlightenment. And there's a common understanding of that within our community of practitioners and students who are learning with these teachings and practicing them. Because the more that you understand what enlightenment is, the more likely you are to be able to actually attain it. It's like if you're traveling to a new city that's far away from your current city, you would need to know what that city is, what's the name of it, what is there, what kind of things would you see once you get there, what are the advantages of going to this city, and what's the pathway, which, what's the, the roads to traverse, or what's the method of travel to actually get there. And if you have this information, then you're going to be more likely on your journey to be able to arrive to this city and then enjoy it when you actually get there. So that's what this chapter three is all about, is helping you to understand the goal and the pathway towards that goal. So I would like to welcome you. And remember, you're going to be able to ask questions as we go throughout our session today, whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put your questions into the comment section and our moderators, James, Manal, and Basam will see those and be able to ask them during the class so that you can get answers to your question. And if you're in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly to ensure that you're understanding this content. Because remember, this path to enlightenment, it's not about believing anything. It's about learning, understanding, reflecting on those teachings and practicing them so that you can independently see the truth for yourself. In this journey, you need teachers, of course, to help guide you. But 
it's up to you to really understand this practice and progress on this journey. So we'll be talking about that and a whole lot of other things today. And I would just like to encourage you to ask any questions that you have in order to get clarification or deeper understanding about what it is that we're talking about. Because I tend to kind of talk at a certain level of detail. And then as students have questions and have interest to dive deeper, based on your questions, we can dive deeper into various aspects of the teachings as you guys make it known that you're interested to explore into any particular area more deeply. So let's go ahead and get started. The first thing that I would like to share with you is just coming to a common understanding of what is enlightenment. Enlightenment is a permanent mental state attainable during your life as a human or a heavenly being. These are the two realms of existence that individuals can actually attain enlightenment. And it can also be attained at death. So if you haven't experienced enlightenment during your lifetime, there is the ability to also attain this at death. And having attained enlightenment, the mind will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, having eliminated 100% of all discontentedness. The mind will be unshakable meaning it will never experience any discontent feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy. All of these discontent feelings and others will be eradicated and eliminated from the mind where the mind will be permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And having attained this mental state during your life, you will have escaped the cycle of rebirth where there will no longer be any more existences in any realm where you will have experienced this discontentedness. The problem that all unenlightened beings are facing is this discontent mind, and it's the path to enlightenment that eliminates that discontentedness. However, the true problem that we have been experiencing for many, many, many lifetimes is this countless round of rebirths where we keep being reborn over and over and over again, experiencing the difficulties, struggles, and miseries of life because we haven't yet figured out this path to enlightenment and how to train the mind to escape this whole cycle of rebirth, experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And when you progress on this path, which we'll be talking about today, you will know that you're progressing because the mind is becoming more and more and more peaceful. Or another way to say that is it's becoming less and less and less frustrated. Things that you once had difficulties with and struggled through, maybe experienced anger or frustration, those emotions will start to soften more and more and more where the same things can happen that happened a few months ago or a few weeks ago and the mind doesn't react in the same way. It doesn't have these strong feelings or these strong emotions. The emotions start to soften and eventually the anger never arises anymore or the frustration, irritation, the boredom, the loneliness, the guilt, the shame, the resentment, the shyness. It never arises because the mind has been trained so well. So you will know that the mind is unshakable, that it no longer experiences this discontentedness. And thus you will also know that there's no longer going to be any rebirth because the mind is now residing in this mental state of enlightenment. 
also referred to as Nibbana. Nibbana is the Pali word that we use to refer to this mental state. And the vast majority of the teachings of the Buddha that we refer to in this tradition are written in the Pali language or captured in the Pali canon or the Pali text. This is the largest, most complete collection of the Buddhist teachings. So you'll tend to see people who are in the Theravada tradition that will maybe use a, a Pali word here or there. They might use Nibbana rather than enlightenment. But for me, I tend to teach in all English except for the word gamma. There's not just one word that represents the word gamma in English. So I still use that word, but for the most part, I always use the word enlightenment. And you may also see this word nirvana. This is from the Sanskrit language, which is essentially pointing to the same thing, this mental state where the mind is permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You may even see some other words. Some people refer to it as, I think, uh, samadhi or something like that. And I've seen some other things. Even Jesus Christ talked about the Holy Spirit and some other things like this. So this is essentially a human phenomenon or a human mental state that can be accomplished through learning teachings, reflecting on those, practicing them, and evolving the mind through this inner growth or this inner improvement where you're improving the condition of the mind through training the mind. In the Buddhist teachings, we focus on freeing the mind from craving, anger, and ignorance. These are referred to as the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. We're going to talk about these in detail in chapter 8, but these three aspects of the mind need to be eliminated and eradicated in order for someone to experience enlightenment. This craving is how the mind has this mental longing with a strong eagerness. This is the cause of the discontent mind. And if the mind gets the objects of its affections, this longing with a strong eagerness, if it gets that, it's going to experience pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, and elation. And that is a discontent mind because it's basing the inner feelings on some external condition. And as long as the mind continues to do that, all these objects of its affection are not permanent. Therefore, if it latches on to external conditions to fulfill its inner happiness or excitement or elation, then at some point it's not going to get the objects of its affection. So therefore, it's going to experience painful feelings. This is like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, things like this. And oftentimes when the unenlightened mind experiences these painful feelings, the mind wants to push them away. And that's where the anger and hostility and aggression comes in from the unenlightened mind. And what's the real core that's really creating all of this and keeping the human being or any being stuck in this whole cycle of rebirth is ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. This is where the mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. Prior to getting on this path and learning this path, you probably had no idea why you were angry, what caused frustration. You might have even blamed it on other people. Just like me, when I didn't know these teachings, I went around blaming everyone else and blaming other situations, and I thought everyone else was the problem. And 
you know, we just don't understand why we're angry. We aren't practicing what we call right view. So therefore, we think that other people in these other situations are actually causing our anger. But that's because of our unknowing of true reality, our ignorance. We think that when we do things that are unwholesome, we don't necessarily know that they're unwholesome. We don't necessarily realize the way that we speak to people, the way that our actions are, or certain thoughts that we have. We don't see them as being destructive and harmful. And we don't realize this natural law of karma in play that as we put out harmful things in the world, harmful things come back to us. And because of this unknowing of true reality, we just keep experiencing this cycle of frustration and struggle and misery and misunderstanding and confusion. And we have really uh, difficult times in our relationships and things like this. And it's not until we eradicate this mental longing with a strong eagerness with craving, desire, attachment, eliminate that anger, that hatred, that ill will, that pushes people away and pushes situations away and then eradicate this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. It's not until we eradicate that fully that the mind can then experience this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy that we call enlightenment. Another way that you'll hear these three poisons, three unwholesome roots or three fires referred to is greed, hatred and delusion. These are other ways that people refer to them. So you might hear them referred to that way or desire, ill will and confusion. So we have multiple ways of kind of referring to this. I tend to like craving anger and ignorance. And as I get into chapter eight in the future and explain these in more detail, you'll come to some understanding. But as you read different aspects of teachings from Buddhist teachers, you might see these different words being used at different times. Another aspect of this training of the mind and freeing it of craving anger and ignorance is one of the things that the mind's very ignorant about or unknowing of true reality about is this self, which we're going to talk about today. So in order to attain enlightenment, we would need to free the mind of this self or what we call realization of non-self and dissolve the ego. So a real simple way to understand enlightenment is it's a mind that is free of craving anger and ignorance with the realization of non-self and dissolving of the ego. And having done that, then the mind will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. The mind will be unshakable. The mind will be practicing the opposite of these unwholesome roots or these three poisons, or these three fires, the opposite, in order to eradicate these three poisons, three unwholesome roots, and three fires, the opposite of that is generosity, because if craving, holding on to things, is the problem, or the unwholesome root, the opposite of that is practicing generosity, where we share, right? And we're taught that as children, but we oftentimes don't stick with it. And then the opposite of hatred, anger, or ill will is loving kindness, this active goodwill without judgment towards other beings. And the opposite of ignorance or unknowing of true reality is wisdom. And we're going to talk about cultivating wisdom and acquiring wisdom today. This enlightened mental state that we're talking about 
in order to attain it, you would need to learn and practice the path to enlightenment. And I also refer to this as the natural laws of existence, which are essentially the Buddha's teachings. The Buddhist teachings, this path to enlightenment, these natural laws of existence, the more you learn them and practice them, this is a purification of the mind through training the mind. You're purifying the mind of these three poisons. You're eradicating these three poisons or these unwholesome roots or these three fires. So you're training the mind and purifying it so it's no longer making decisions through these three poisons. Because when we make decisions through craving, anger, and ignorance, these unwholesome roots, if we have decisions that are tainted with those, then there's going to be unwholesome results because of that. But when we purify the mind through training the mind, and we make decisions through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, now those decisions are going to produce wholesome results for us because of this whole natural law of gamma. This cause and effect or action result, essentially the result of our decisions. All the Buddhist teachings are built on this natural law of gamma. So if we're making wholesome decisions, wholesome results will transpire. If we're making unwholesome decisions through these three poisons, unwholesome roots, then there's going to be unwholesome results because of it. So part of what this path is about is yes purifying your mind and training the mind to get to this permanent mental state but it's also making really good decisions around you in order to clean up all the unwholesome decisions that you've made in the past because just because you're on this path to enlightenment and you're training your mind you've still got relationships around you with your life partners with your parents with your siblings maybe your co-workers, your neighbors, where in the past you were making decisions through craving, anger, and ignorance, and now those relationships are strained or they're challenging or difficult for you. And as you gain more and more wisdom on this path, you'll then be able to now re-engage in these relationships and potentially sort things out and help things to be more smooth in your relationships. But it has to start with your purification of the mind, because if you enter into decisions and relationships with craving, anger and ignorance, and you're making decisions through those three poisons, then there's going to be unwholesome results because of it. So a very wise practitioner will really focus inwardly on purification of their own mind and then as they do, their condition of their mind improves more and more. They will then start to clean up their life around them and making more and more wholesome decisions to improve the situations in their life where they can now have more peaceful and loving relationships with the people around them. Just as I talk about what enlightenment is, I also like to talk about what enlightenment isn't because you're going to hear different perspectives of what enlightenment is and what enlightenment isn't. What you'll often hear people describe enlightenment as is they'll describe it as happiness or perhaps ultimate bliss. I don't explain enlightenment that way because I think it's challenging to understand enlightenment if you explain it as happiness because in the unenlightened state, all of us have experienced happiness. 
we've all experienced happiness but yet that wasn't enlightenment so enlightenment can't be happiness because we've all experienced happiness but yet the mind wasn't permanently peaceful calm serene and content with joy that happiness became impermanent and it faded so enlightenment is permanent if enlightenment is happiness then when we experience happiness then that would be permanent but it's not permanent so we can't explain enlightenment as happiness or ultimate bliss because this isn't permanent it's impermanent instead the mind is permanently joyful because it's not based on any condition the happiness that we experience in the unenlightened state is based on some condition we are happy because we got a new car or a new job or we got a new computer or we got a raise at work or some exciting thing happened in our life and the mind became happy excited or elated based on this condition but once the mind's affection of that shiny new object fades then the mind is no longer happy anymore that happiness is impermanent and now it moves to boredom or loneliness or sadness or anger or some other feeling that is also impermanent because it keeps basing its inner feelings on some external condition where the enlightened mind has gone inward and it's eradicated all this pollution of the mind and now it's inwardly peaceful calm serene and content with joy not based on any conditions whatsoever the mind wakes up peaceful calm serene and content with joy it goes to bed peaceful calm serene and content with joy all day long the mind is peaceful calm serene and content with joy there's nothing that is going to shake up an enlightened mind it never gets shaken up by anything around it whatsoever it just applies wisdom to all of these situations that's happening because it knows that all these situations that are happening are just challenges that are all impermanent and it's just a matter of applying wisdom to make these situations better and better but it takes a lot of training in order to get the mind to that point you also sometimes hear people use the word ultimate bliss but what people are describing here when they're talking about enlightenment as happiness or ultimate bliss in my opinion what they're truly talking about is they're describing the jhanas or these four preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to this first stage of enlightenment because when it lands in that first jhana the mind becomes very very happy very very excited and there's a lot of bliss there and a lot of times people feel this shift very quickly almost like a light switch if people think that enlightenment is either on or off and it's like a light switch and they think it's happiness or bliss they can be mistaken and actually think that they're enlightened when they experience this first jhana but in fact they're actually not enlightened yet they're just starting to experience a lot of results as part of putting together a lot of the teachings that are needed to progress the mind further and further so it's important to understand that an enlightened mind isn't going to have this extreme bliss this excitement this happiness based on some condition and even the excitement or the bliss that's experienced in that first jhana oftentimes comes from the fact that you've put together the teaching so well and you experience this 
enormous bliss or this happiness and the mind's like, oh, wow, look at me. I'm doing all these teachings so well. And wow, the mind is so blissful. And some people, like I mentioned, can think that they're actually enlightened at that point. But in the jhanas, they're still going to experience discontentedness. And this is how you can know that you're not yet enlightened. Or even in that first, second, and third stage of enlightenment that we're going to talk about today, there's still discontentedness there. And that's how you know that the mind is not yet fully enlightened because it's still experiencing discontentedness. So let me pause here and see if there's any questions on how I'm describing what enlightenment is so I can help answer those for you and help you get any clarification that you need. Remember, you can put your question in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section, or you can raise your hand electronically and we'll uh, have the moderators unmute you so that you can get your question asked and answered during class. Hi, David. You mentioned that enlightenment is a permanent mental state. Does that mean that enlightenment is specifically, essentially, at the end of the path, or is it possible to have glimpses of it along the path? So a couple things here to share with you on that, James you will get glimpses of what enlightenment is as you're progressing on the path. The light isn't either on or off. It's like when you flick on a switch and the light bulb is kind of flickering and flickering and flickering and it kind of flickers for a while. It's on, it's off, it's on, it's off. And then eventually, boom, it's on all the time. So you'll experience as you're moving through the jhanas and the stages of enlightenment is you will experience two or three weeks where the mind's completely peaceful, no discontentedness, and then all of a sudden, boom, something will happen and you'll experience some irritation or frustration. Then you can go three, four, five, six weeks where, okay, the mind feels pretty enlightened and boom, something can happen. Or you can go two, three, four months and you're like, wow, you know, I've just been so peaceful and calm for all this time. And then boom, something can happen. So it's not until you're experiencing years of not experiencing any discontentedness at all that you can pretty much know you're enlightened. But I don't suggest that you ever convince yourself that you are enlightened. Because if you do, there's a tendency for the mind to become sluggish. There's a tendency for the mind to become prideful or arrogant. And if the mind has any of those things, then you're not enlightened for sure. So it's better to never consider yourself actually enlightened and just always consider yourself a work in progress and that you've never actually really attained enlightenment, even when you haven't experienced discontentedness for a year or two years or three years. Just consider yourself just always learning and practicing on the path. And this way, your mind won't become sluggish, arrogant, or prideful. And then another thing that I'll share with you on that, James, is because of what I just said, I don't ever consider there to be an end to the path, right? That just consider the path that even when you're enlightened, you just continue to learn and you continue to grow and you get to learn so many new things, not just about the Buddhist teachings, but about all these other things that are part of life. One of the things that the Buddha said during his lifetime is as he was walking through the forest with some monks, he reached down and he picked up some leaves in his hands and he said, monks, what is more, all of the leaves and all of the trees overhead 
or these leaves that I picked up in my hand? And they said, all the leaves overhead in the forest, of course, are much more than what you've picked up in your hand. And he said, so too is the wisdom that I acquired through my self-awakening as part of attaining enlightenment on this independent journey. All the leaves over the head or represents all the wisdom that I've acquired through this path to enlightenment. But the wisdom that I'm going to teach you in order to help you awaken your mind to enlightenment is represented by these few leaves that I picked up in my hand. So essentially what you do on this path is you learn from a teacher like me these few leaves that are in the Buddha's hands. And by you learning those, you awaken the mind. And as you do, if you never consider yourself enlightened, then you're going to see more of the forest and you're going to see more and more of the leaves. Whereas if you consider yourself enlightened, then you're only going to maybe ever learn what's in the hand, those few little leaves in the hand. So if you never consider that the path is ended or that you're enlightened, then you have the ability, once the mind is awakened to enlightenment, to continue your growth and further understand lots and lots of wisdom in the world. One of the ways that I've described this is consider enlightenment kind of like the starting point for the rest of your life. So if you train on this path for two, three, four years and you attain enlightenment at some point and you know that your mind hasn't been experiencing discontentedness for several years, that's kind of like the beginning of your life because now you get to enjoy the rest of your life without any discontentedness whatsoever. So if you decide that you're going to operate businesses or you're going to operate charities or you're going to teach these teachings or whatever it is that you end up deciding to do in life, you're going to do it so much better with an enlightened mind than in the unenlightened state. Because in the unenlightened state, as you're working in your business or your charity or whatever it is that you're trying to put together, there's going to be struggles. There's going to be challenges where things fall apart and things blow up and things don't have wholesome results because in the unenlightened state, you're not yet making 100% of your decisions through the wholesome roots. But as your mind becomes more and more enlightened, you're going to be making better and better decisions through the wholesome roots. So therefore, anything that you encounter, anything you decide to pursue in life, if you never consider yourself enlightened, you will just be more and more and more successful at it, whatever success means to you. So don't ever consider yourself enlightened and just know that you will get glimpses of enlightenment as you progress. Even some people, when they're meditating at the very beginning of the path, they oftentimes will get a few seconds or a few minutes where they'll notice some real peacefulness in the mind. And I often refer to this as kind of like temporary enlightenment where you just get these little glimpses, but then eventually the light's on all the time. Thank you for that clarification, David. I had one other question of clarification based on the first slide. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that enlightenment is a mind free of the three poisons with the realization of non-self and dissolving of the ego. I was wondering, when one eradicates the three poisons, does this necessarily dissolve the ego? Yes, because the ego is going to be part of ignorance. So you could easily say that 
enlightenment is a mind free of craving anger ignorance or unknowing a true reality and just be done with it there but one of the ways that we kind of emphasize this because letting go of the self is so difficult and so challenging for a lot of people and also letting go of the ego is so challenging to dissolve that we really kind of highlight that as part of the description to enlightenment so that it's not overlooked in because you can start working on eradicating the self and the ego once you kind of get your arms around this path within the first six months or a year you can start working on chipping away at that self and chipping away at the ego so that that you're almost kind of like ahead of the curve so to speak so that's why we add in there the realization of non-self in dissolving of the ego but because the mind is ignorant because it has this unknowing of true reality it has this self and it has this ego if it wasn't for this unknowing of true reality it wouldn't have that so those things are actually comprised in that third poison of ignorance or unknowing of true reality thank you for that david let's go to basim now for a couple of questions on zoom sounds good okay uh, thanks james uh, a question from uh, Junie. he says I really appreciate the distinction between enlightenment and the bliss of jhana. Can you expand on that a bit? Are the jhanas required for enlightenment? Yes. Everybody who progresses to enlightenment will move through those four jhanas. And they'll move through the three stages before they get to the fourth stage. The jhanas are very different than enlightenment. The jhanas the mind has this happiness this bliss it's still experiencing discontentedness it still has this outward longing it still has craving anger and ignorance the mind tends to want to be secluded and isolated almost becomes very withdrawn from the outside world and as you get closer and closer to enlightenment that's not the case the enlightened mind isn't going to experience conditional feelings. It's not going to experience discontentedness and it's not going to feel like it wants to be isolated. The enlightened mind can be isolated and secluded and by itself with no problems. The enlightened mind won't experience boredom and loneliness and it can perfectly be content with being alone for long periods of time, but also the enlightened mind knows that it needs to go out and interact with people because there is this interconnectivity amongst all beings and there's the enlightenment factor of energy which we're going to talk about today that if the enlightened mind wasn't out practicing the teachings with other people it wouldn't actually experience enlightenment because in order to get to enlightenment the mind will have to experience the ability to have things like right intention right speech and right actions whereas if somebody was secluded for 10 or 15 20 years by themselves in a cave and never interacted with another human being they wouldn't know how to practice right speech for example they wouldn't have developed that skill so sometimes i hear about people who are kind of locked away in a temple and they haven't left the temple for 10 or 15 years and people claim that that person is enlightened and now after 10 or 15 years they're going to come out of the temple for the first time in about 10 or 15 years well 
someone can feel pretty enlightened if they're in a temple environment and they're secluded there, they've been there for 10 or 15 years, and the people who come into that environment, into that bubble, you know, bow down to this person, treat them well, always venerate them and treat them very highly, the person hasn't actually moved out into the outside world. So I wouldn't consider somebody who's lived at a temple for 10 or 15 years and never has set foot outside of that temple as enlightened because they haven't trained their mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in any and all situations. They've only trained their mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in that little bubble. So this is oftentimes the jhanas where the mind wants to stay secluded, isolated, and in solitude. And it's not until the mind moves out into the outside world and starts interacting with people that it can experience true enlightenment where it can now be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in any and all situations. Okay, uh, Hobie says, hearing you describe Nibbana makes me crave it. I can't find the balance or middle way between making it my goal and working on my mind because of the craving for Nibbana. Does this subside eventually? Is there a way to think about it differently? to make this less of grieving and more of a goal? Yes, this is a common thing, Holly, that people, once they hear what enlightenment is, oh, I want it, I want it, I want it, right? And that's part of the craving. That's part of the unenlightened mind, having that mental longing and strong eagerness. Of course, breathing mindfulness, meditation, generosity is the general training that we talk about later in the program to help you eradicate that. But one of the things that I found that really helps to eradicate this the most is so one way to think about enlightenment is that you need to attain enlightenment or you need to experience enlightenment right that's part of the way that we explain enlightenment another way is to consider yourself already enlightened that you are already enlightened but you have this pollution of craving anger ignorance the self and the ego that's hindering you from experiencing the enlightenment that the mind is already enlightened. So what this path becomes is removing this pollution, removing this poison, removing these unwholesome roots so that you can experience the enlightened mind. So one way to eradicate this longing for something, because typically the mind longs for something that it doesn't have. It has this strong eagerness for something that it doesn't have. So if you consider that the mind is already enlightened, you just got to get this kind of smoke out of the way, this pollution out of the way, then that can be a way to kind of be like, ah, okay, I've already got it. I just need to kind of get rid of all this smoke and pollution that's hindering me from experiencing the enlightened mind. So that can potentially help you. Uh, Nick says, Teacher David, when one catches these glimpses for a moment or a minute in meditation or elsewhere, what is the best way to stop yourself from saying, here you go, I feel it, keep it going, or whatever, then it goes away. Is that a craving? How do you suggest that one stays focused on a breath? Yes, one of the big challenges that people have 
as they're starting to experience the jhanas in these blissful feeling and this happiness or even as you experience the peaceful calm serene content mind with joy this this flickering of the light is once the mind experiences that even for a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes the mind starts craving it right away and be like oh my goodness that feels so good right because you haven't experienced that ever before and when as soon as you start craving it it goes away and then it's gone it's like i want it i want it i want it and the more you want it you can't get it back so what you've got to do is whether you're in meditation or you're in daily life and you're starting to experience this peacefulness come in this calmness this serenity this contentedness this joy that's not based on any conditions whatsoever is just know that it's impermanent right even though we know enlightenment is permanent you've got to train the mind to not crave that enlightenment make it a goal an objective an interest and when you get these glimpses you'll probably get glimpses for a year two or three even you know maybe longer before you actually the mind moves fully into enlightenment so as you're getting these glimpses don't allow the mind to convince itself ah look i'm enlightened now look i haven't experienced discontentedness for three months well as soon as you do that that's the arrogance coming that's the pride coming and now the mind's going to regress and it's going to pull back so that's why i teach to never consider yourself enlightened and anytime you experience this bliss or this peaceful calm serene content mind not based on any conditions just always think it's impermanent it's impermanent it's impermanent don't get attached to it don't get fixated on it and just allow the mind to ease up to it closer and closer and closer and never get fixated on it to the point where the mind craves it just know that you're headed in the right direction and whenever it's time for the mind to get there it will get there and it's going to be a gradual progression it's not a light switch this is another big myth about the buddha's life that people think he sat under a tree he meditated and then the light switch went off this is very common in buddhist communities that people will describe this but if you look at what the buddha said in his teachings in the pali canon he said it's a gradual process gradual training he never said that it's sudden or instantaneous so you're going to experience the same gradual progression he had a six-year journey so it's going to take you some time to gradually move up to enlightenment more and more and more and just always know whatever feelings that you're experiencing those feelings are all impermanent the goal is to get to this unconditioned mind where it's permanent and the only way to get to that permanent mental state is you've got to train the mind to understand impermanence so the mind keeps craving permanence craving permanence craving permanence but it never gets it everything's impermanent once it fully trains itself to accept impermanence and recognize impermanence and no permanence once it's fully trained then it finally gets what it's been wanting all along which is that permanent mental state but the only way to get there is you've got to first train it to understand impermanence and accept impermanence and just go with the flow okay thanks for your help no more questions for now okay so let's move to 
the next part that I would like to share with you guys, which is what are the advantages of enlightenment, right? Because now that you know what it is and a little bit more about what it is, let's talk about what the advantages of someone who's attained enlightenment, what they would be experiencing beyond this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. What are some of the advantages? Well, yes, the primary advantage is that the mind is going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. The mind is unshakable. It will never experience discontentedness ever again. However, in addition to that, because you've trained the mind so well and it's become purified and the mind is coming to the present moment, it's no longer dwelling in the past. It's no longer longing for the future. It's no longer experiencing any of these discontent feelings. The mind's been fully trained and purified. You've laid down the burden of carrying all these unwholesome roots around. What you're also going to experience is a high degree of focus, concentration, deep, profound memory, and clarity of mind. This is the optimized mind that the Buddha talks about where the mind comes into the middle. If you remember the middle way, which we're going to talk about in chapter six, the Buddha talks about a sitar where when a string of a stringed instrument is too loose and it's plucked, it doesn't play nice music. Or if it's too tight and you pluck it, it doesn't play nice music. It's only when the instrument is perfectly tuned to the middle that it strum the string and it plays beautiful music. Well, the mind is the same way. And that coming to the middle, coming to the present moment and eradicating all this poison and unwholesome roots, purifying the mind, the mind gets to this point where it has a high degree of focus, concentration, memory, and clarity of mind. And that will gradually increase as you get closer and closer to enlightenment. So in the jhanas and in the first, second, third stage of enlightenment, that will gradually improve. And then as you get to enlightenment itself, then you'll have that as well. This is where you now can become very, very, very productive as you're gradually progressing on this path because you'll need that focus, that concentration, that memory, and that clarity of mind to help you in your daily life as you're going about all your different tasks. So this is where the mind is more finely tuned and optimized to be in the middle. And as I've said, an enlightened mind, one of the advantages is you're no longer going to experience discontent feelings such as sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, anxiety, and stress. You need to actively train the mind to eliminate these. And the cause of all of these discontent feelings is exactly the same thing. It's craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. That's the primary problem that Gautama Buddha discovered in eradicating that from the mind. All of these discontent feelings will be eliminated from the mind gradually over time. You'll see this gradual decreasing from the real strong anger and hostility and rage over time. It'll start to decrease. And you may have even seen that already if you're 30, 40, 50 years old, even without being on this path, oftentimes in our 20s, we have a lot of rage and 
a lot of strong emotions. And then as we age, we kind of slowly start to soften. But it's not until you actively get on this path that you eradicate all of these things. Sometimes people ask me, you know, David, what's the meditation for depression? Or David, what's the meditation for anxiety? Or what's the meditation for loneliness or boredom? Well, there aren't these, you know, 100 different meditations for each individual feeling and emotion because the cause of the discontent mind and all of these discontent feelings is the same exact thing. It's craving, desire, attachment. So this path is actually very simplified and very simple and basic when you approach it that way. But what happens is the ego or arrogance kind of wants things to be difficult because we feel more intelligent if we make something more difficult and more challenging than when we finally kind of start to understand it, then the mind kind of feels more accomplished. But remember, a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha doesn't have any arrogance, doesn't have any pride, doesn't have any ego. Their whole goal is to make the teachings as simple as possible because they're interested in seeing the largest number of people attain enlightenment during their lifetime as possible because their whole journey, the struggle that they did on their own by themselves, they went through all that heartache and misery and challenges. And now that they've attained enlightenment as a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, their responsibility is to now share the teachings for the rest of their life with as many people as are interested to learn and actually attain enlightenment. Well, the best way for a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha to help as many people as possible to attain enlightenment is to simplify the teachings and make them as simple as possible so the widest audience possible can actually learn and practice their teachings. So the Buddhist teachings are actually quite simple and very basic when you look at them at their core. Now, they look like a big mountain when you first start learning. It looks like there's a huge mountain to traverse. But the more you get into them and you start to understand them at their heart and at their core, they're very simple. So you don't need to run out and learn a hundred different meditations. There's really only two that you will ever need to learn and all the rest of the path as well. Now, there's another two meditations as well. There's a total of four, but those other two are only for unique, specialized situations. But there's only two that we cover in this program that everybody would actually need. And then I only introduce the other two on a case-by-case basis when I realize through working with someone on a personal basis that they actually need these other two. So these discontent feelings, while they all look very different, and in your life, when you've experienced sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, fear, all these discontent feelings, they were all very different situations and very different circumstances that these feelings arise in the mind. And you think that there's potentially very different causes or conditions that are creating these discontent feelings. But in reality, it's actually the same exact condition that is causing all of these feelings to arise. So that's why the solution is actually the same for all of them. You don't need to have a hundred different solutions. So you'll get these solutions as part of this path. One of the other benefits of this enlightened mental state or one of the advantages is that you're going to have deep wisdom 
with politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respectfulness towards all beings. You're going to be able to practice all these good wholesome teachings along the Eightfold Path, which includes right intention or right thought, includes right speech, right action, right livelihood. You'll have mental discipline. So you're going to have deep wisdom. You're going to have outstanding moral conduct. And you're going to have very good mental discipline, which means you're not going to be causing any harm in the world. So therefore, no harm is going to be coming to you. And this is how an enlightened being is going to function. You'll notice that they're very polite, very kind, very friendly, and very respectful towards all beings, every single person in their life, and animals too, and other beings as well. There's nothing or no one that an enlightened being wouldn't show loving kindness and compassion towards. An enlightened being isn't going to cause harm in the slightest little bit through their intentions, their speech, their actions, or their livelihood or anything else. They're always going to be interested in practicing harmlessness. Okay. And then lastly, all of this together, this mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, all the other things that we talked about with this focus and concentration, memory and clarity of mind, this politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respectfulness, you're going to find that as you progress on this path and get closer and closer to enlightenment, you're going to find it very easy to have personal and professional relationships where now you might have challenges in certain relationships and you might struggle in certain relationships, but other relationships maybe are quite easy for you, right? So in this relationship with this person, you guys have never had a harsh word between the two of you. Everything's outstanding. You understand each other very well. And in that relationship, it's almost like you're kind of enlightened in that relationship because maybe you don't have attachment to that person. So therefore, none of your decisions in your relationship with that person are coming through craving anger and ignorance. So therefore, you have a very wholesome relationship with that person. But other people you absolutely struggle with, and it's so difficult. That's because of the craving, anger, and ignorance. But once you attain enlightenment, you will find all relationships, no matter if they're personal or professional, to be very easy. And you'll be able to conduct these relationships very easily because you will have eradicated these three poisons and you'll have deep wisdom, you'll have very wholesome moral conduct, and you'll have outstanding mental discipline to be able to interact in these relationships. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about the advantages of having attained enlightenment. Lori has a question, so let's go to her first. Sure. Um, I, I do not have a question. I just want to say thank you for the teachings. Um, today is a very special day, and I am very grateful. Okay, you're welcome, Gloria. All right, David. I was wondering, there was a little discussion earlier about craving for enlightenment and avoiding that. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, is it appropriate to use enlightenment as a motivational tool along the path? Sure, yeah. You know, you need motivation, you need energy, you need alertness and vigor and interest, you need dedication, you need diligence. Oftentimes we think about it, this path to enlightenment because I just described it, 
with peacefulness, calmness, serenity, contentness, with joy, we almost think it's like the yellow brick road and it's kind of like it should just be such a joy to walk to enlightenment. But if you've watched The Wizard of Oz and you saw the yellow brick road, Dorothy had a lot of challenges along the way. And some of those times along the yellow brick road, uh, you know, she was quite scared and, and had a lot of issues. Well, this path to enlightenment, you need motivation and you need to realize that there's struggles along the way. And that's where a community like this, we support each other. And that's where a teacher can help you that when you're struggling, you reach out and you say, I'm struggling, right? This isn't about, you know, even though we talked recently, James, about fake it until you make it. That was in terms of like right speech and right action and practicing loving kindness with other people. But in terms of your community and the people that you interact with and your teacher, don't fake it to me because you can't fake it to me because I can see the craving, anger and ignorance. But also you don't want to fake it in front of me. You want to share with me like, David, this is really difficult. My husband came home from work and he yelled at me and it really hurt me. Or I came home from work and I yelled at my kids and I know I shouldn't have did it. But now I feel so guilty about having yelled at my kids. Tell me all of those things, right? Oftentimes what will happen is students want to tell me all the good things, all the progress they're making. Okay, that's fine. I'm interested in hearing that stuff. But as soon as you're done, we kind of cut that off because I know this path works. I know your mind's getting more peaceful. I know your mind's getting more calm. I know there's more joy coming. I know you're getting better concentration. I know all those things. What I'm interested in hearing from you is what are all the struggles you're encountering? Because if you stay diligent and motivated on those and you share those challenges with me, now I can help you get past those. But if we spend too much time talking about all the benefits you're getting, then we don't have time to talk about the struggles. So, yeah, you can use enlightenment as a motivating factor to say, yeah, I would like to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy. Or another way to say it is use the discontentedness as a motivator right when your mind gets angry or frustrated or you're feeling guilty or shameful or you're feeling bored or lonely be like man i need to get rid of this like where's that book (laughs) where's where's that podcast where's that video uh let me go do some meditation right like i oftentimes use discontentedness because it feels horrible to experience this discontentedness, especially when you get two or three weeks or two or three months of feeling peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy, and then some discontentedness slips in. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to tolerate this discontentedness. Let me get rid of this. And by that point, if you're experiencing two, three, four, five, six months of peacefulness, then you will be pretty astute of knowing how to get rid of it But still, having a relationship with a teacher and having a community like this where we help each other, that's what it's all about. And that's what you need in order to get to enlightenment. Thanks, David. It seems that an important theme is that this practice is about the journey rather than the destination. And that the advantages of enlightenment are also advantages that we experience in the practice, such as a peaceful mind and focus whether or not we do actually reach enlightenment or not yeah and and not thinking about it as a destination is another way to eliminate any kind of craving someone might have for enlightenment because there's never a time 
where someone's going to come out from a curtain and hand you a certificate and say, aha, now you're enlightened, you know, take your bow, right? This isn't about like a graduation ceremony where you're going to cross a stage and everyone acknowledges that now you're enlightened. This is essentially a path to nothingness. You know, it's a path to nothingness. There's no acknowledgement by anyone that you're enlightened. You've got to make these good, wholesome choices because of good, wholesome choices. If the arrogance or ego wants to become enlightened because you won an award, well, there is no certificate or medal at the end of this. But what you do get at the end of this is these things that I'm talking about right here, but you have to make sure you never consider yourself enlightened and just continue to progress. One of the things that you might experience is it becomes quite enjoyable, I think, that as you learn more and more of these teachings and you get more and more wisdom, that as certain things arise in the mind or certain things happen in the world, it's like, I know the answer to this. I know how to fix this anger or I know how to fix this boredom. I understand why COVID happened or you go out and you see your neighbors arguing or you see some event, and you know why all of these things are happening because of the wisdom from the Buddhist teachings. And part of the sadness that you might experience is you might actually get attached to the path of gaining all this wisdom where some people get to the point where they learn a bunch of teachings and they get so attached to learning and they just want more and they want more and they want more and they feel like it's got to be more complex than this. And the mind is actually craving this complex path and it enjoys this working on the inner mind so much that you might actually experience sadness and disappointment as you start realizing that the mind is becoming more and more enlightened. It's kind of like if you've ever done a home improvement project, when you first get started and you get the idea to do a home improvement project, the mind gets very excited and happy. And then you go to the store and you pick out the paint colors and you pick out the curtains and the blinds and the furniture and you get all these choices to make and you bring all that stuff home and you, you're working on this project for a month or two or three. Well, as the project starts to actually end, then the happiness and excitement starts to end because you allowed the mind to get happy and excited at the beginning and through the middle of the project. Once the project starts to end, you're kind of looking for the next project because of the craving, desire, attachment, because there's some kind of sadness that sets in that now the project's over. Even though you enjoy the results of the project, it's like, ah, I don't really have anything to kind of latch on to anymore. Well, if you latch on to this path to enlightenment and find so much pleasure in working on the inner mind and doing all these things that we do to progress on this path, as you're starting to come to the end of this path and you're getting these six months or a year of no discontentedness, you might get kind of bored because you're not yet enlightened yet. And the mind's still attached to the actual path itself in the process of actually learning and gaining wisdom. So you've got to get to the point where you don't even attach to that, where you just kind of consistently, methodically with motivation and dedication work towards attaining this goal as an objective, as a goal and as an interest, but never allowing the mind to latch on to anything and think that it's permanent and that that's the way life's going to be permanently. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. All right. Well, let's go to the next part that I would like to share, which is how to attain enlightenment. 
Well, the way that you need to attain enlightenment is you need to learn and implement these core teachings with guidance from a teacher. The only person who would be able to attain enlightenment without any guidance would be an actual Buddha, which we're going to talk about soon. A Buddha would already know these things and they would have discovered these things on their own without the help of anybody else. But the last Buddha that the world is currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. And there are certain criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha, which we'll talk about. But everyone else is going to need guidance. So you're going to need guidance in order to learn these things. And that's why a relationship with a teacher is so important. You wouldn't be able to just read a book or watch a YouTube video or surf around in Facebook groups and ask a few questions here and there and actually get to enlightenment. Sure, these things are helpful. These things may be needed, but you're going to need some consistent guidance from a teacher, somebody who you feel really knows these teachings and can help guide you along this path. And anybody who's guiding you along the path should be able to help you independently confirm the teachings and not rely on any kind of belief because there is no belief on this path to enlightenment. All these teachings that you're going to need to learn should be able to be learned. You should be able to reflect on those teachings and start to see how they're applicable in the world as a natural law of existence. And you should be able to practice those teachings on a day-to-day -day basis without your teacher and be able to see how through practicing what this teacher taught you, it's improving the condition of the mind and it's improving the condition of your life. Nothing on this path is based on belief, but you're going to need a teacher in order to introduce these teachings to you, to share these teachings, allow you to seek guidance through asking questions in classes or personal guidance or other things, because without that guidance, you wouldn't have the ability to gain the wisdom that you need because through this learning, reflecting and practicing to independently confirm and verify the teachings for yourself, you'll see the truth in the teachings and then that will become wisdom. There's no belief here. You've already done this with other things in your life. If you grew up in a culture where there was Santa Claus or the tooth fairy or some other belief or some kind of superstition that was going on in your culture, at some point in time, you started seeing the truth. You saw that Santa Claus wasn't real. At one time, you had a belief that the Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy was true, and you thought that that was what was going on. But at some point, you got some truth, and as you looked and you reflected and you kind of looked around, you realized that was a belief and you let it go and now you've got wisdom and you don't care how many people sing Christmas carols, how many Santa Clauses you see in the mall, how many presents you see under a tree or how many tooth fairies are supposedly coming. You know with 100% certainty your mind is unshakable. You know that Santa Claus doesn't exist or the tooth fairy doesn't exist or some other superstition that you've debunked, you know, because of the wisdom that you've acquired, that this isn't true. You've eradicated belief from the mind. And that's how you got to this unshakable condition where through the wisdom, you know that Santa Claus isn't true. 
and nobody can ever convince you anything different. And that's why your mind is unshakable on that topic. Well, your mind has certain beliefs right now. It has certain beliefs and certain untruths that it doesn't understand. The only way for you to eradicate this belief from the mind is to learn the truth. And then as you learn it from a teacher, you independently confirm it on your own through reflecting and through practicing. And when you learn it, you reflect on it and you practice it and you see that it works, then it's wisdom. And then when you have this wisdom, nobody can ever shake your mind off of that wisdom ever. Your mind becomes unshakable. So in the past, we all used to think that somebody else was causing us to be angry. We all used to think that some other situation was causing us to be angry. But once you make the breakthrough to the three universal truths and the four noble truths, and you make that breakthrough, and you realize with 100% certainty that you are in fact the one causing your anger, you will never go back to believing that somebody else is causing your anger ever again. And when you make that breakthrough, these are the words that the Buddha actually uses. He calls it a breakthrough because that's like the first big breakthrough. And if you're not there yet, it's okay because next week we're gonna be talking about the Four Noble Truths and the three universal truths. You need to make that first breakthrough where you realize and you know it with 100% certainty because you've learned it, you reflected on it, and you practiced, and you see the truth that you indeed cause all your own discontent feelings. Because once you make that breakthrough, then the mind will never go back to believing anything different. And now, because you're the one causing all the discontentedness in your mind, it's just a matter of learning and practicing, training this mind to eradicate this discontentedness. Because if you're the one causing it, then that means you can actually eliminate it. That's why you don't need to go around and change the outside world because there's nothing for you to change. These natural laws of existence are the natural laws of existence. What we need to do is we need to gain wisdom to eradicate the ignorance the unknowing of true reality of these natural laws. And once we eradicate the unknowing of true reality and you start understanding these natural laws through these teachings, then as you practice and see with wisdom that these natural laws that the Buddha taught are the truth, now the mind is going to start functioning in the world very differently than it did before. Where in the past, if something happened, we might have blamed somebody else for making us angry or we might have blamed the situation, or we might have blamed our boss or our coworker. Once you see these teachings more and more clearly and you gain the wisdom, you're no longer gonna be blaming other people for the struggles and the challenges that you face in your life because you will have seen the truth, you will have made that breakthrough, and now it's just a matter of time of consistently in a dedicated, determined, and diligent way to train the mind to eradicate all this ignorance so that you can also eradicate the craving and anger, purify this mind, and now move into this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So all of these teachings that I've got here, the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the Brahma Viharas, 
the 10 fetters, the seven factors of enlightenment, and extensive meditation training, these are the core teachings of this path. These are all things that I'm going to teach you in this program and a lot more as well, because it's not only these teachings that you need in order to attain enlightenment, but these are the core teachings. For someone just starting out, I would suggest to start with the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, and then part of that eightfold path is the meditation training. But there's a whole lot of other teachings as well. So you'll need to understand these teachings very, very deeply so that you can practice them. In order to attain this wisdom, it's not just intellectual knowledge. We're not talking about just intellectual knowledge where you can recite scripture, for example. There's a certain amount of intellectual knowledge that has to happen between you and the teacher to gain this insight and start to bring in this intellectual knowledge into the mind. That's part of this path. But then you have to do that inner reflection and start to think about the teachings and look in the world to investigate how these teachings apply. And then you have to practice the teachings because it's practicing that's actually going to train the mind to eradicate these three poisons. There has to be a shift and a change in the mind where the mind is practicing these teachings. If the mind only understood these teachings intellectually, but it never took them into reflection or practice, there wouldn't be actual changes to the underlying mind. The underlying condition of the mind wouldn't change. So to eradicate this pollution or these three poisons, these three unwholesome roots, it takes more than just intellectual learning. It takes moving it into practice so that there's shifts and changes in the actual mind. And this is why there is no belief on this path, because if you just believe a whole bunch of things and you don't know whether it's true or not, this is why the mind can be shaken up, because you don't know if it's true or not. But when you see clearly through intellectual learning, through reflection and through practice, and you see the truth for yourself and you gain wisdom like you did with Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy, then the mind becomes unshakable because you've eradicated belief. And now the mind becomes more and more stable, more steady, more calm because you start to understand everything that's happening around you because it's a real struggle to exist in a world that you don't understand. And this is what the unenlightened mind is experiencing. It's existing in a world that it doesn't understand. And this is why it keeps getting shaken up. These natural laws of existence are unknown to the unenlightened mind. That's the unknowing of true reality. And that's why the mind keeps getting shaken up. But the more that you see true reality, the more wisdom that you acquire through practicing these teachings and seeing the truth for yourself, that's where the mind becomes unshakable, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it understands what's going on around it. So these are the teachings that I'm going to be walking you through as part of this program and a whole lot more as well. But these are the real core teachings. So any questions on anything that I've shared here? We have no questions at this moment, David. Okay. So let's move in to the 10 fetters because out of all of these teachings, 
we really would like to focus on the 10 fetters in our discussion about what is enlightenment. Now, in terms of how to obtain enlightenment, we would be focusing on the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts. This is the beginning steps of this path. And that's why we're going to start with that next week. But in terms of what is enlightenment or what is Nibbana, it's important to understand the 10 fetters. Because in order to attain enlightenment, you would need to eradicate the 10 fetters from the mind. But you can't do that today if you're just starting out or even if you haven't really put together this path very closely. You wouldn't be able to just go in and start removing these fetters right away. The three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, all this meditation training and everything else that I just showed you as part of the core teachings is essentially preparing the mind to get to a point where you can eliminate these fetters. These fetters are really deeply rooted in the mind and the mind is holding on to them so tightly that it's all this other preparatory work as part of this path that you kind of build up to. And as you build up to it, that's why you start experiencing the jhanas. You start experiencing this happiness and this bliss, and you start experiencing some concentration and some clarity and some equanimity. And that's how you know that you're starting to put together the path. But in terms of what is enlightenment, it's the eradication of all of these 10 fetters. It's not just the craving, anger, and ignorance. That's a generalized way to refer to enlightenment is craving, anger, and ignorance, the realization of non-self, and the dissolving of the ego. But all of those three poisons actually are higher level descriptions of these deeper fetters. The fetters are actually a more detailed description of these three poisons. Okay, And the mind is ignorant or unknowing of true reality of these 10 fetters. So through learning these 10 fetters and understanding exactly how to eradicate each individual one of them, that's how the mind ultimately attains enlightenment. But this isn't where you start. Even though this is in chapter three, I'm just kind of cluing you in of these are the things that you're actually going to be working on. But you have to do all this other preliminary work before you actually get to this. We've talked about personal existence view and non-self in a previous class. We've talked about all of these 10 fetters in a previous class. But one of the ones that I would like to kind of hone in on because it's one that at this point you might have questions about is number two, doubt about the teachings. Eradication of doubt about the teachings doesn't come about based on belief or faith, okay? Because you heard me say there's nothing on this path that is based on belief or faith. Doubt about the teachings doesn't get eradicated that way. And you also can't eradicate doubt about the teachings by just saying, okay, I believe the teachings, right? The way to eradicate doubt about the teachings is through learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings so that you see the truth, you gain wisdom, and over time, the condition of the mind gradually improves more and more and more and more and more, where at one time certain things made you angry, and now you're starting to see this slow decreasing in eradication of these strong feelings where the same exact thing happens that happened a few weeks or a few months ago, and it's like, wow, 
my mind isn't affected by that at all. About three months ago, I would have been so enraged. But wow, it's peaceful. This is how you eradicate doubt about the teachings is by you seeing the truth that as part of this path and by you undergoing this training on this entire path to enlightenment, that you see the condition of the mind improve. So you'll see those as you go, as you get these little glimpses of enlightenment, you'll get to the point where you have no doubt that this path is indeed improving the condition of the mind, is in improving the condition of your life. And another way to talk about doubt about the teachings is you essentially build confidence. You build confidence in the Buddha. You build confidence in his teachings. You build confidence in his community of practitioners throughout the world. You build confidence in your own teacher. And you build confidence in your own ability to attain enlightenment because you notice over the course of many months that you're starting to get it. Things are starting to click. Things are starting to fall into place. And you're like, hey, when you first started, the mountain looked so tall. But now that you're kind of like on this journey and you're making your way up the mountain, you're starting to see some progress here. So this is how you eradicate doubt, not through belief or faith, but through actually learning, reflecting and practicing the teachings and seeing them actually work. Another one that I'll talk about here is wrong grasp of behavior and observances. This is where the mind needs to understand that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship do not lead to enlightenment. And for a lot of people, that's essentially what attracts them to Buddhist teachings. So if you grew up in traditions where you were taught rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and you're like, eh, I did that stuff and it didn't really help so much, and that's why I'm moving to Buddhism, then perhaps this one is already eradicated from the mind. And that's great. You've got nine more to eradicate, right? So wrong grasp of behavior and observances is related to the mind thinking that somehow by worshiping or doing ceremonies, this is somehow going to improve my life. Well, there's nothing wrong with doing these things and we don't judge people who do practice rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship but even if you are participating in any of these right now, there's got to be an understanding in the mind that there's no worshiping of a statue. There's no worshiping of any deity or any supreme being that's going to instantly change the mind. The condition of the mind can only be changed to become peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy when it goes through this process of intellectual learning, reflection, practice, gaining that wisdom and seeing the condition of the mind improve through training of the mind. We've all done that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and the mind is still discontent because those rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship isn't changing the condition of the mind. There's got to be training that happens as part of that, and it's that wisdom that starts to change the condition of the mind. There's others here as well that I'm Please to answer any questions about. But since we just recently taught a class on these 10 fetters, I didn't feel that I need to go through them in extensive amount of detail today because my real goal is to get to the seven factors of enlightenment. But I would like to at least pause to see if there's any questions here before we move on. We have no questions at this time, David. Okay. And one thing I would like to add before we move on is this number eight conceit 
This is the arrogance, ego, and pride, okay? This is where the mind either puts itself above or below other people. One of the ways to eradicate this is every time you see that arrogance, pride, that ego arise is cut it off and let it go and practice being humble. One of the things that you'll find that is just outstanding to help you start to eradicate conceit is sleeping on the floor. Now, a lot of people know that the Buddha slept on the floor, that monks sleep on the floor, that Thai people sleep on the floor. And it sounds, if you haven't been in a culture that does that, it might sound a little bit odd or strange to you. But if you start sleeping on the floor, put a mattress on the floor or something like this, and you do that for an extended period of time, you'll notice just getting down on the floor, getting up in the floor, people come into your room, perhaps you have to look up to them. Not that you're putting yourself below them, but this starts to help train the mind to let go of this arrogance or this pride, this conceit where it wants to put itself above other people. But also just as dangerous as that is putting yourself below other people. Because then if you look up to people all the time, the mind would be uncalm when you're around someone that you look up to, like a celebrity or a politician or someone who you hold in high esteem as someone who you admire and revere. When you're around them, you might be shaky. You might not be able to put your words together. Your palms might be sweating. There might be some anxiety knowing that you're about to meet this person. So just like you shouldn't put yourself above anyone, you also shouldn't put yourself below anyone. And one of the ways to train the mind with this is to sleep on the floor. And if you would like to do that at any time, feel free to start implementing that into your practice. And I think you, what you'll find is it's just really, really helpful if you understand what you're doing, which is helping to eradicate the mind's interest to put itself above others and have arrogance and pride. It's going to take many months and years for the mind to be trained that it needs to let go of this conceit. So if you sleep on the floor for one week and you're like, ah, it's not working, well, <laughs> one week isn't going to change a whole lot, right? We're talking about months and years of training here. So this is one thing that I can suggest to you early on because conceit is one of the more challenging things to let go of. And if you start sleeping on the floor, it can really help you. And if you do that for an extended period of time, that's what the mind's going to need. So let's move to the next thing, which is talking about the four stages of enlightenment. These 10 fetters are arranged in a way that leads to the four stages of enlightenment. After the mind starts practicing and putting together the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, all those other core teachings that I talked about, including meditation, and the mind starts moving into the jhanas, the mind needs to start focusing on these 10 fetters. And as it does, when it eradicates the first three fetters, the first lower fetters, one, two, and three, personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, and wrong grasp of behavior and observances, it will have entered into the first stage of enlightenment that we call stream enterer. We call it stream enterer because the Buddha talked about enlightenment as entering the stream and the stream leads to the ocean. And the ocean is enlightenment. So for someone who's attained the first stage of enlightenment, they've entered the stream. And it's only a matter of time before they attain enlightenment, either in this life, 
or some future life. They will attain enlightenment in no more than seven new births. So it could be two births, it could be three births, it could be five births, or it might be this actual life. But once somebody attains the first stage of enlightenment as a stream enterer, the mind is then solidly in these teachings and on this path. The self has been eradicated. There's no more doubt about these teachings. You know for sure that these teachings are improving the condition of the mind and the life. And you understand that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship isn't what's creating that benefit for you. It's all of this training that you've been going forward with for so many months and maybe years. At that point, the mind will not revert backwards. It will not go back down to the jhanas. It will not revert backwards. It's only going to move forward from there. So attaining the first stage of enlightenment is a real benefit because the mind is more solidly in the four stages of enlightenment and it's only a matter of time before one attains enlightenment. The stage of once returner, this person will have already eradicated the three lower fetters because they would have been a stream enterer, but then they would have also thinned the fourth and fifth fetter, meaning they would have started thinning those out. They haven't been eradicated yet, but central desire and ill will would have started being thinned out. So instead of having this rage or this hostility, this aggression, it would have been softened where the mind would be kind of annoyed or a little bit irritated in certain situations. It's no longer going to have this real strong emotion of ill will anymore. Very few situations that their mind is going to experience this ill will. And same thing with central desire, that a once returner would have thinned this. They still have that fetter. The central desire is where the mind is looking externally through the senses, the five senses that you know about, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body, but then also the mind, that the mind is looking through these six senses for pleasure, for sensual pleasure. This is the craving, the central craving. And a once returner will still have that, but it would have been thinned. And one of the ways that you can see this typically is one of the strongest sensual desires that we have is sexual contact. We oftentimes really crave sexual contact. So a once returner will have diminished, significantly diminished their sensual desire where they will no longer have cravings for sex, but they'll still be having sex potentially, but it will start to be thinned out, right? And someone can actually kind of hang out here in the first and second stage of enlightenment and still have sexual contact and have quite a pleasant life because discontentedness at this point has been diminished, but they still have discontentedness. They're experiencing peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy, but it's not permanent. It's kind of like that light flickering that we've talked about. So someone who's maybe in their 20s or their 30s, maybe you haven't even had kids yet, but you're thinking about having kids, you can actually put together all of this path, move through the jhanas, get all this benefit, move into the first and second stage of enlightenment and really enjoy this existence and continue to enjoy sexual contact with your partner. And then at some point in the future, if or when you decide that you're 
you've had enough and your partner's had enough, you guys might decide to slowly diminish your sexual contact and that's where you'll ultimately eliminate this central desire. And sexual contact isn't the only central desire, but that's one that we tend to have the most strong. And once somebody eradicates all five lower fetters, then this person is in the third stage of enlightenment, which we call a non-returner. A once-returner with eradicating the three lower fetters and then thinning number four and five, they will still be reborn if they die at that point. They will be reborn back into the human realm one more time. And on that next rebirth, they will attain enlightenment. A non-returner, someone who's eradicated all five of the lower fetters, they will die at the third stage of enlightenment, still experiencing discontentedness occasionally, but a very, very, very improved life and a very improved mind as a non-returner, they would die and they would be reborn into the heavenly realm. And then from there, they would most likely attain enlightenment from the heavenly realm. So that third stage of enlightenment is also a quite nice place to exist. But the real goal shouldn't be any of these jhanas or the three stages of enlightenment. The real goal should be the fourth stage of enlightenment, which is an arahant. An arahant would have eradicated all 10 fetters. They would have moved through the first, the second, the third stage, and then ultimately moved into the fourth stage where not only have they eradicated the five lower fetters, but they would have eradicated the five higher fetters as well. And this person is what we would consider enlightened at that point. The mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, permanently unshakable, never angered, never frustrated, never irritated, never bored, lonely, resentful, jealous, anything like this. They're polite, kind, friendly, respectful to all beings, nothing but loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, generosity. This person is done essentially with this whole cycle of rebirth. But any arahant, a wise arahant, would never consider themselves as done. Instead, they would know that they have eradicated discontentedness. They would know that they're done with this whole cycle of rebirth, and they would just continue to pursue more and more wisdom for the remaining part of their life, whether it's in these teachings or in something else that they might aspire to learn and pursue and understand. So an arahant is enlightened. A Buddha is not a stage of enlightenment. A Buddha is actually a person. A Buddha is an arahant. They've attained enlightenment. They've eradicated all 10 fetters, but they did it by themselves without any help of any other teacher or any guide. They did it all on their own without having any kind of instruction or guidance from any person to help them along this path. This person has independently attained enlightenment. They see the teachings very, very clearly, and they've awakened the mind to this enlightened mental state, having eradicated all 10 fetters. And they understand the teachings inside and out, backwards and forwards. They have deep, deep wisdom, just like the Buddha talked about, 
Their wisdom is represented by all the leaves of the trees overhead. But then, having awakened as a Buddha, this person will then dedicate the rest of their life to sharing those teachings that led to their awakening. Because they independently discovered these teachings on their own, they have this deep, 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 profound wisdom of how to attain enlightenment. Their mind wasn't influenced by any teachers or any outside sources. So their deep wisdom now becomes very beneficial that they start guiding other people to enlightenment during their lifetime through those self-discovered teachings. And during that person's lifetime, they will lead countless people on this path to enlightenment and to people actually attaining enlightenment. And then upon their death, they will leave the teachings in such a condition that countless more people after their death will be able to attain enlightenment beyond their lifetime. And this is why we call this person a Buddha, right? Gautama Buddha himself very rarely, if ever, referred to himself as a Buddha. They didn't really refer to him as a Buddha until he died because they knew at that point that he was a Buddha. His students, a lot of his students knew he was a Buddha because they knew he didn't have any teachers and they knew that when they were learning with him that the condition of their mind was improving so those teachings had come from someone who was independently awakened and their mind, their condition of their mind was improving. So they knew that he was a Buddha. But there were other people who weren't studying with him that didn't know that. And it wasn't until he died that he left the teachings in such a condition that more and more people kept getting enlightened that people knew that this person was a Buddha. And that's why we refer to him as a Buddha. So these are three of the primary criteria, independently awakened to enlightenment, share teachings for the rest of their life, leading countless people on the path and actually to attain enlightenment. And they leave the teachings in such a condition that upon their death, countless more people attain enlightenment. There's other criteria as well, but these are the three primary criteria that makes a Buddha a Buddha. So any questions on this? We have no questions at this time, David. Okay, this is something that we covered a couple of weeks ago. So let's move into the seven factors of enlightenment and use the rest of our time today discussing these because this is an aspect of attaining enlightenment that you're gonna to need to understand. Putting together the core teachings and then ultimately eliminating and eradicating the 10 fetters is what moves the mind into enlightenment, okay? But as you do that, it's kind of like making a sculpture. If you had a big hunk of wood and you were chucking off pieces of wood in order to make this really fine, intricate sculpture, when you first start working on that sculpture, you're going to be chucking off lots of big chunks of wood. And as you make this sculpture smaller and smaller and you get more and more refined to the actual image that you're trying to create out of the sculpture, you're going to eventually get to the point where you use very fine tools to carve out the eyelid and the eyebrows and the shape of the eye and the shape of the nose and putting some scarring on the, the wood in order to actually bring the, the tone of the sculpture that you're making into more visible and clear view. Well, what the seven factors of enlightenment are, is they're essentially that, that once you've put together all those core teachings, 
that's where you're going to be chucking off a lot of big wood. When you're learning the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, and all of those things, maybe you stop sexual misconduct, or you stop taking substances that cause heedlessness, or you clean up your speech and practice right speech and all these other things. You're chucking off some big pieces of wood. And then you're, you're meditating more and more. The mind's moving into the jhanas. You're eliminating these 10 fetters and you're starting to do that. Well, as you do, then you're going to need some finer tools to really fine tune and optimize this mind to bring it into the middle because the mind's going to be kind of swinging around. It's still experiencing discontentedness. So as you're moving closer and closer to the fourth stage of enlightenment, the mind is still experiencing some frustration, some irritation, some boredom, loneliness. And you have to go in with these fine tools to kind of fine tune the mind. So the Buddha gives us these seven factors of enlightenment as a way to kind of intricately fine tune the mind because there's going to be times as you're moving through these stages of enlightenment that the mind becomes sluggish or complacent or the mind's going to become excited or elated and you kind of have to temper that and bring it into a more fine-tuned condition where you've kind of refined the mind through all the other teachings that the Buddha offers as well as the seven factors of enlightenment. And here are some words directly from the Buddha, and then I will actually share the seven factors of enlightenment. The Buddha says, It is monks, when the seven factors of enlightenment are developed and cultivated in this way, that they fulfill true wisdom and liberation. True wisdom, that's how you eradicate ignorance. Ignorance is the core problem, the core hindrance that's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. So it's not until you fulfill true wisdom that the mind is fully enlightened. And liberation is the freedom of the mind, where the mind becomes completely free. It's completely liberated, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Even though we talk about the Eightfold Path, and that's what we always talk about is the Eightfold Path, someone who's attained enlightenment will actually be practicing what we call the Tenfold Path. There's two other path factors that get added on for someone who's attaining the mental state of enlightenment as an Arahant. These other two path factors, there's nothing to actually do. Where with right speech, there's the five factors of well-spoken speech. With right action, there's certain things you need to refrain from and train the mind to do. With right livelihood and right effort and all these other factors on the path, there's things that you actually need to do. Well, these last two factors of the path, step nine and step ten, the ninth step is wisdom and the tenth step is liberation. So we call it right wisdom or right knowledge. And then the 10th factor is called right liberation. In order to attain enlightenment as an arahant, you will have had to put together all the other teachings, but then you will have to have right wisdom or right knowledge where you understand the teachings and you can explain them with ease. An arahant will be able to explain the teachings with ease. It doesn't mean they're a teacher. It doesn't mean they're going to take on students. It doesn't mean that they do things to share the teachings into the world. It just means that their mind has so much wisdom 
And they understand these teachings so well to have eradicated all these unwholesome roots and all of this poison in the mind that should somebody ask them a question, they have right wisdom or right knowledge and they can easily explain the teachings without issue. So that just comes from all the other teachings and all the other path factors. There's nothing extra you need to do in order to practice that ninth step of right wisdom or right knowledge. And then right liberation, that 10th step, is where the mind has actually been freed from craving, anger, and ignorance. It no longer experiences any discontentedness whatsoever. It's no longer burdened. It's no longer hindered by anything whatsoever. So that's why the Buddha is saying here that the seven factors of enlightenment are developed and cultivated in this way to fulfill to come to fruition, true wisdom and liberation, which are those last two path factors, in order to consider someone enlightened, they would need to be doing all the other teachings as well as the ninth and tenth step that we would see they have true wisdom and their mind is completely liberated, never experiencing discontentedness ever again. Some other words that the Buddha shares about the seven factors of enlightenment and he shares a lot, but this is just some that I brought in for our class, is this is the fine-tuning of the mind. When you see the seven factors and we talk about them, what he talks about is he says, whenever the mind is sluggish, that's the time to practice the enlightenment factors of investigation, energy, and joy. Because when the mind's sluggish or complacent, when you investigate the teachings, when you practice the enlightenment factor of energy, when you practice the enlightenment factor of joy, this is going to bring the mind out of that sluggish condition where it wants to just be secluded and in isolation and in solitude. It's going to raise it up and give it a little bit of energy by practicing these three factors of enlightenment. Then if the mind is excited or elated, this is the time to practice tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. This is what's going to bring the mind down and calm it down from that excitement and fine-tune it and bring it to the middle. Okay, so make sure you understand this because as you get closer and closer to enlightenment or even now, if you notice your mind is sluggish, kind of bored or lonely or complacent, then you need to practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, energy, and joy. Or if you notice your mind is excited or elated, you need to practice tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, which I'm going to explain on the next slide. But there's one factor that you see is not on here because there's seven factors. The seventh factor, which is actually the first, the Buddha says is mindfulness, right? This is where the Buddhist teachings start to overlap because we know about right mindfulness as part of the Eightfold Path. Mindfulness is awareness of mind, particularly the four foundations of mindfulness, which we have covered at different times in this program. The body, feelings, the mind, condition of the mind, and mental objects. By practicing mindfulness or awareness of mind, the Buddha says this is always useful, always useful. These others, if your mind was excited, if your mind was elated, and you practiced investigation, energy, and joy, 
it's going to send it to be even more excited. Or if your mind was sluggish and complacent and you started practicing tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, it's going to take it into more complacency, more sluggishness. So these factors are to fine tune the mind based on particular condition, either sluggish or excited. But mindfulness, right mindfulness is always useful because you need to have awareness of mind because how would you ever know your mind is sluggish or excited if you didn't have awareness of mind? How would you ever know that the mind was angered, frustrated, irritated, bored, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, all those other discontent feelings if you didn't have awareness of mind? So we need to cultivate mindfulness and practice that always. That's what people are talking about when they say they walk their dog and they're going to meditate or they're going to take a drive in the car and they're going to meditate. They're not actually meditating. They're actually practicing awareness of mind, mindfulness. So you need to practice that all the time. All your waking hours have awareness of mind. Okay. So let's look at the actual seven factors as the last thing that we're actually going to talk about today. The first factor is what we just talked about, mindfulness, awareness of mind. You need to cultivate this all the time. And I've been recently talking about the four factors of enlightenment, where not only are you aware of the mind, but you're aware of the bodily sensations. You're aware of the feelings in the mind. You're aware of the condition of the mind. And you're aware of any mental objects that are in the mind. And the sooner and sooner you can catch the arising discontentedness, if you can catch it when it's just a bodily sensation and cut it off there, then it doesn't actually pollute the mind. It never becomes feelings. And if it doesn't become feelings, then it never be changes the condition of the mind and it never becomes this mental object. But the problem is, is that when you're not on this path and you're not practicing mindfulness, you can go from zero to enraged in a split second. But if you slow the mind down and you start practicing awareness of mind, what you're going to notice is you're going to have sensations in the body start to arise. And you can start feeling these sensations when the mind's getting ready to be angry. You'll see these and feel these sensations in the body. And if you can catch it there and you don't allow it to come into the mind, you've just saved yourself a whole lot of misery, a whole lot of heartache because you cut it off when it was just sensations in the body. But if it moves through the sensations of the body and it gets into the feelings of the mind, well, now you're angry. Now you're frustrated. Now the mind's frustrated. Well, okay, let's still cut it off there. If you've been doing breathing mindfulness meditation, you can cut it off there perhaps. But if it persists in the mind as feelings, now it's going to move into being a condition of the mind where now for several hours or for several days, this particular incident is bothering you. You're holding on to this anger, this frustration for many days. And now because you didn't catch it in the bodily sensations, you didn't catch it in the feelings of the mind, it's now affected the condition of the mind and you're going to have to deal with it for a few days or until you let it go, until you finally let it go, maybe a week or two but it would be much better to catch it as a bodily sensation. And if you still don't allow the mind to catch it there at the condition of the mind, 
And now two weeks and a month and two months, next thing you know, you're walking around a very hateful, vindictive, jealous, angry person. And just the slightest little thing can throw you off and shake up the mind. And either you've been this way in the past or you know people that are like this, that the condition of the mind has this ill will, this hatred or this craving, right? And the mind just gets goes from zero to enraged in a split second. And it's very uncomfortable to be around these kind of people. Or perhaps you, if you're that way, it's very uncomfortable and people don't want to be around that person. That's their gamma. That's the cause and effect. So to practice mindfulness and to develop this in meditation and then practice it in daily life is to have awareness of the body, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and any mental objects that are in the mind so that then you can catch it, cut it off, and eradicate it from the mind more and more and more and more. And as you do, eventually you get to the point where those feelings don't even arise anymore. And that's where the mind becomes peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy. Because the same exact situation that happened a few weeks or months ago can happen. There's no frustration. There's no annoyance. There's no anger that arises. So by practicing mindfulness, that's why it's useful all the time, because then you can apply effort to eradicate it and cut it off. But it doesn't work if you're not practicing breathing mindfulness meditation on a day-to-day basis. That's why you need to be practicing breathing mindfulness meditation two or three times a day so that when you get into those situations, you can have awareness of mind and catch it earlier and earlier and earlier and cut it off so it'll bother you less and less and less. And eventually you get to the point where it won't even arise at all. So mindfulness is highly important all the time. Just cultivate this at all times. The second factor of enlightenment is investigation. This is where you have keen investigation of the teachings. This is where you come to classes like this, you read the book, you listen to podcasts, you watch the videos, you spend time with your teacher. And of course, as a household practitioner, you have a certain amount of time that you need to allocate to your job, to relationships, but you've got to find time for investigating the teachings as well. I always suggest that 10, 15, 20 minutes a day just read the book and rather than sit down for an hour to read on Tuesday and then you don't touch it after that, it's kind of hard for the mind to take in a whole hour of reading and then not pick it up for the rest of the week, for example. So what I always suggest is kind of 10, 15 minutes of reading, particularly before bedtime. There's research that shows if you read before bedtime, just 10 or 15 minutes, that your mind will retain that for a longer period of time. Because if you read like in the morning or the middle of the day, the mind's more active and it's going to experience a lot more things during the day having read. So what I used to do and what I still do is I oftentimes will read at nighttime. Now I'm reading all the time, you know, all throughout the day. But when I was really working on this path really closely to get to where I am today, I would oftentimes read at nighttime. And I found that to be very, very beneficial. So I I saw this research and I tested it and it worked. So just 10 or 15 minutes at nighttime, 
do some meditation either before or after reading and then go to sleep right that's part of your nightly routine and that will really help you to just kind of soak the teachings into the mind but if the mind is already really excited you may not want to you know read that particular day you may want to just kind of calm down because when you start investigating the teachings it's going to make the mind just a little bit excited okay but if the mind's sluggish and it's really sluggish maybe you read for 30 minutes or an hour and that's what kind of picks it up right now this third factor is energy this is mental alertness or vigor the opposite of energy would be complacency where the mind just wants to sit around watch a whole bunch of youtube videos it doesn't want to go outside it doesn't want to interact with people it just you know oh god do i really need to go wash the dishes do i really need to do my clothes do i really need to have just one more conversation with my coworker? that's the opposite what alertness or vigor is the mind is engaged the mind can be relaxed and tranquil like we're going to talk about here but it can also be alert and attentive right the mind needs to be attentive that's that enlightenment factor of energy and then joy this joy that the buddha is talking about you'll see it in these buddha wajana books as rapture or spiritual rapture that's how people sometimes translate it but it should be joy joy that the buddha is talking about here is unconditioned joy not associated with any particular object or any particular situation but the mind is just inwardly joyful you're just walking down the street and it's joyful and you're just driving in the car and it's joyful so when you experience that where the mind is joyful not based on because it's sunny out i'm joyful therefore when it's raining i'm going to be angry or i'm going to be frustrated that's a condition right that's a conditioned mind the mind can be joyful when it rains the mind can be joyful when it's sunny the mind can be joyful when uh, you hear anything or see anything you smell anything the mind it doesn't it's not basing its joy on anything pleasant or anything repulsive it's just always joyful so learn to practice this because when you do you'll find that this smile is very accessible for a long part of my life i had a really hard time smiling i could never really access a smile but when you start practicing these teachings and you have joy not based on any particular condition you can access this smile very easily this is one of the reasons why they call thailand the land of smiles because a lot of people are going around smiling all the time right that's because of this unconditioned joy the fifth factor of enlightenment and now moving into these factors that you would practice if the mind is excited is tranquility this is the quality of mind where the mind is calm steady and peaceful and you can initiate this when you're noticing that the mind's excited or elated is bring the mind to a state of calm steadiness or peacefulness concentration is the ability to give your attention or thought to a single object or activity this is singleness of mind being able to focus on one thing at a time you develop these 
all three of these that we're going to talk about, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, you develop these as part of your meditation practice, right? By developing singleness of mind or concentration, that right concentration as part of the Eightfold Path, you focus the mind on the breath in meditation, and now you develop singleness of mind in meditation. But then outside of meditation, you need to also practice singleness of mind where you never allow the mind to multitask. And that might be hard for you right now because you've been training your mind to cycle from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. But get to the point where if you're eating, you're eating. You're not eating and watching TV. You're just eating. That's it. And you might be bored when you're doing this right now when you first get started and that's probably why you're watching tv because you're trying to occupy the mind so you don't feel bored but you need to train the mind to just be content with eating right or when you go on a walk you might be listening to music or a podcast now because you need some other stimulus you need some sensual pleasure in the ear in order to make sure the mind doesn't get lonely or bored but you've got to train the mind to have singleness of mind and to eradicate this boredom and loneliness and just be able to focus on one thing at a time. So the way that you do that is yes, in meditation, but also in daily life that you practice singleness of mind and you only do one thing at a time. And you're going to notice that you're actually a whole lot more productive this way because each decision that you make is going to be wholesome and it's not going to be coming from these three unwholesome roots. And then equanimity. This is a mind that has calmness, composure, evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. That's the first part of equanimity, where it's calm, it's composed, there's evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. You just got news that your child has got injured at the playground. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, what's going on? You're going to start making bad decisions and they're going to have unwholesome results. You got to maintain your composure. You just got a call that your dog is having heart failure or has cancer, or you just got a call that you're being laid off from work. You just saw somebody get in a, in a car accident or you got into a car accident yourself. You've got to maintain your calmness, maintain your composure, in your evenness of temper. It's not natural for you now, but you can control the mind and you can train the mind to do this. And by doing this, it's gonna be more beneficial for you. Because think about it if you were in a car accident and you severed a limb, or you broke a bone and, and it's kind of broke through the skin and you're starting to bleed. If your mind becomes irate and irritated and frustrated, you're gonna be bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and have more of a chance to actually die and perish in the accident. Or say you got bit by a snake and your poison is now in the body and you became very uncomposed and very irritated and just thinking and, and obsessing that you're going to die. Your heart starts beating faster and faster. The poison is going to go through your system a lot quicker and you have more of a chance to die, right? So by maintaining your calmness, your composure, your evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation, whether it's with your dogs or your children or your own work or your own life, this is going to produce good results for you. 
And that's why it's part of the path to enlightenment, that you need to be able to maintain this evenness of temper, this equanimity, so that you can continue to make good decisions, especially in a difficult situation, and approach things in a calm manner. The second part of equanimity is treating everyone impartially. Because equanimity, the root word there is equal, right? So treating everyone impartially. You treat your children the same way you treat the neighbor's children. If you give your child a piece of chocolate, you give the neighbor's kids a piece of chocolate too, right? Or uh, at work, if you're a boss or you're a coworker, you treat everybody the same. Or your children, right? You don't love one child more than you love another child. Or you don't love one dog more than another dog. Or you don't love your mom more than you love your dad, right? You just treat everybody equally, right? This is the second part of equanimity. And this is very important in order to actively train the mind to be in this enlightened mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Because if you treat some people some way and you treat another group of people another way, then your mind has to figure out, okay, who am I talking to? Am I talking to someone that I really respect and that I really admire and I need to be very polite with them? Or am I talking to this person over here that I don't really like and I don't get along with very well and I'm kind of frustrated at them, so now I'm going to be disrespectful to them? This is very burdensome to the mind. And the mind can't be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in this situation because it's always trying to figure out who am I talking to and I got to treat these people one way and these people a different way. But if you treat people impartially, treating everyone equally, then you're always the same way. Your practice is permanent. You're always practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. doesn't matter who you're with, the president of your country, or some janitor or garbage collector. These are all the same people. They're all human beings. They serve different roles in our society, but they're all equally important. We couldn't function in the world without our president, but we also couldn't function in the world without our garbage collector and our janitors either. We just wouldn't have the same quality of life without those people. So everybody is to be treated impartially. Then you don't have to figure out how you talk with one person versus another and your practice is permanent. You're always treating everyone polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. This is what eradicates racism. This is what eradicates homophobia. This is what eradicates sexism. This is what eradicates xenophobia, is treating everyone impartially as a human being. And if the entire world did this, then wouldn't it be such a peaceful, calm, serene, and content world with joy? But in order for us to get there, each individual needs to be able to do that. And that's why you're focused on your practice and improving your practice. So with that, I'll just send this back to you guys and accept any questions that you guys might have on the seven factors of enlightenment. We have a question from Manal, David. She's asking about the enlightenment factor of energy. Does this occur at the point 
when the mind is able to finally drop some of the lower fetters and has greater commitment and right effort. These aren't things that naturally occur. You have to apply effort to arise them in the mind. So when we say that there are seven factors, you might think that these are things that someone else is looking at to determine if you are enlightened. But in reality, what they are, they're actually factors that you need to actively apply effort to practice in order to refine the mind and optimize it and bring it into the middle. Thanks, David. You mentioned that these are things that we should be actively practicing. For a person who is starting out on the path, do you suggest that they actively practice all of these things we're learning or are there certain things that they should focus their practice on? I always suggest to focus on the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, and developing your meditation practice. That's the core that you need to focus on. And then there's going to be things that we add to that. But keep this in your back pocket because all of these teachings from the Buddha are like tools. And wherever you notice your mind is sluggish, then you know the answer. The answer is investigation, energy, and joy. You have to arise that in the mind or keep these tools in your back pocket that whenever you notice the mind is excited or elated and you need to calm it down, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So the more familiar you get with these, they become better and better tools for you. It's just like a hammer. When you were eight years old or 12 years old, maybe even now, if you pick up a hammer, you can't really just go build a house with it. If you've never actually practiced it and actually used it and made it a proficient tool in your toolbox. So these are all tools that the Buddha is giving you, but you're only going to become proficient with them if you actually practice them and get really good at them. So a hammer, you're going to have to actually practice with that to learn more and more and more how to drive a nail so that someday you maybe can build something pretty decent. The same thing here is what you're doing with the mind is you're building a home. You're building a residence. You're going to be living with this mind for the rest of this life. And it would be certainly wonderful if it was peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. The Buddha is giving you all the tools here on this path in order to build this perfect dwelling in the mind that will allow the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And the more familiar you get with each one of these tools and when to employ them and when not to employ them, then you'll be able to create this home or this dwelling much more readily. So would you say, David, that the seven factors of enlightenment are essentially our tool guide on finding the middle way in regards to the mind? Yes, this will really help you find the middle way. It helps you to really refine the mind whenever you're noticing that sluggishness, complacency, or whenever you're noticing that excitement or elation. And you can see some overlap here, right? You see the mindfulness has some overlap to the Eightfold Path. You see concentration has some overlap to the Eightfold Path. You see equanimity is part of the Brahma Viharas, which we cover. You could almost look at energy as kind of like right effort, right? So there's some overlap here. So if you focus on building this house with the foundation, because every good house needs a, a solid foundation, that's the 
three universal truths, four noble truths, eight full path, five precepts, and a solid meditation practice. But as you build this house, you're going to need different tools at different times. And this is going to help you refine the mind and bring it more firmly and more stable in the middle. Because essentially there's this groove running down the middle, right? And what's happening with the unenlightened mind is it keeps overshooting this groove you know it kind of might hit your groove for a couple of days or a couple of hours and you feel like you're in your groove and then boom the mind kind of falls out of that groove and you you kind of lost you kind of don't know where you're at and some people kind of stay out of the groove for a couple of years or a couple of months and then boom you hit that groove again it's like oh this feels good i like this and then boom you kind of get outside of that groove again well the buddhist teachings are going to bring you more and more familiar understanding this groove more and more and it's going to help you to widen that groove and then allow you to actually stay in this groove for longer and longer periods of time and that's where the enlightened mind you experience that enlightened mind and it's these seven factors of enlightenment that will help you find that groove and stay in that groove once you're in it thanks david let's go to basam now for our zoom questions Okay, uh, Nick here uh, is asking for some life examples, saying, Richard David, would you be so kind and uh, as to give examples, perhaps a real-life scenario of sluggish mind and investigation, energy, joy. Also an example for excitement and how to practice tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Is it sluggish and go study? And is it excited? Okay, go meditate. Okay, I didn't I didn't quite uh, hear the last part about sluggish. Yeah, uh, Nick is asking uh, about how's it going. Is it sluggish? And go study. And is it excited? Okay, go meditate. Yes, exactly, Nick. So, if the mind's complacent, if it's sluggish, if you're just kind of bored sitting around the house, you know, you, the body feels heavy, you just maybe are, are stuck on Facebook and just, you know, stuck on YouTube or stuck in front of the TV and someone's like, hey, you want to go outside and go for a walk? Nah, I don't feel like it. I'm just going to sit here. Now, sometimes you maybe need to rest and you need to relax. And yeah, you need that, right? But other times you kind of know it's been a number of hours or a number of days and you're just not feeling like doing anything. That's that sluggish mind. If it's just a couple of hours and you need to rest or a couple of days because you've been doing a lot of hard work, right? This is where mindfulness comes in, awareness of mind. But if it's been, you know, several days and, and weeks, right? And the mind is just sluggish and you haven't picked up the book and you haven't been listening to podcasts or videos, or you haven't been meditating consistently, that's where you need to investigate the teachings and get back on the horse, so to speak, get back in the saddle, right? And in doing so, that's going to help you become more alert, more attentive, create more vigor, and you're going to experience joy. The Buddha put these in this order for a reason, because the investigation of his teachings tends to bring up the energy and it tends to bring up the joy. Okay, so he put these like this for a reason. And then likewise, if you're 
like you're saying, excited, elated, you notice the mind's running and very active and jumping around from topic to topic and you're having trouble focusing on any one particular thing, yeah, go practice that concentration, which is breathing mindfulness meditation. And if you're doing this consistently two or three times a day, you may be doing it consistently enough where the mind's pretty leveled out and you're not experiencing a lot of excitement and elation anymore. But if you notice at any point in time that you are experiencing that excitement and elation, that's where, yes, you can go meditate or say you're at work and you can't literally go somewhere to meditate. Maybe you just close your eyes in front of your computer screen or wherever you work. You just take a two minute breathing break where you just close the eyes, just breathe in through the nose, out through the nose. You just kind of slow the mind down, help it to kind of calm and be more tranquil and just kind of slow the mind down. Or if you're in a conversation and you notice your craving is springing up and you're getting too excited about what you're talking about, maybe step away and say, hey, give me five minutes and I'll be back and just kind of slowly walk away, just kind of slow down. Notice when the mind is very excited and elated, not only is the mind moving really fast, but that usually comes into the body. The speech usually starts becoming very quick. The bodily movement starts becoming very quick. You maybe even start walking very quickly. So what you can do to practice this calmness this tranquility as well as this equanimity is just slow down. Whenever you notice that you're walking really, really fast or you're doing things very quick or very rapidly, just slow things down. That's the tranquility. And if it means you need to meditate or you need to close your eyes or you need to just go in a dark closet somewhere, or maybe you're just walking on the street and you're like, whoa, I'm walking way too fast. Let me slow down. Let me slow the body down. This is how you bring the mind down from that excited, active, that too excited, that too energetic, that too elated mind. You bring it down with tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Okay, Uh, Nick continues asking, also, how would you advise someone about multitasking in their job, career, if singleness of mind is the concentration goal? Say a busy profession like someone in nursing or staffing for the hospital. Okay, so using that example, say I'm a nurse and I have 20 patients that I'm taking care of. You can do that with singleness of mind. I'm taking care of 20 patients, but when I go to the bedside of this patient, I'm looking that patient in the eyes and I'm asking them, how are you feeling today? I'm looking straight at them and I'm just focused on them. I'm not thinking about the other 19 patients. I'm just looking at them or I have their chart, right? And I walk into their room and I pick up their chart and now the patient starts trying to tell me about their symptoms. Perhaps what I do is say, just one moment, let me look at your chart. And I'm only looking at their chart. That's it. I'm not trying to listen to them and look at the chart at the same time. This is going to cause problems for you. This is how you overlook what is actually on the chart And this is where nurses potentially give the wrong medications or the wrong procedures. And this is where they make an unwholesome decision because their mind is in singleness of mind. And now let's say the patient gets sicker or they die, unfortunately. 
This is where you get a lot of problems in your career. You get fired, you get your license pulled. So with singleness of mind, doing one thing at a time, you're actually gonna function better and have better performance. We've all been taught, most of us, to multitask. And this is somehow gonna produce better results, but it's not true. That's part of that delusion, that ignorance, that unknowing of true reality is that multitasking is better for you. Absolutely not. It's going to lead to lots of unwholesome decisions. It's singleness of mind, concentration, that focus, that clarity of thought that you're going to be able to focus on each individual task, make good, wholesome decisions, and that's going to lead to good, wholesome results. Okay. Uh, Mircea is asking you to explain again the difference of condition of the mind and mental objects and the factors of mindfulness. Okay. So the first two things you're asking about is the four foundations of mindfulness. I talked about this a few sessions ago where there's the body, feelings, the condition of the mind, and mental objects. Bodily sensations are the first foundation of mindfulness, having awareness of the bodily sensations. The second foundation of mindfulness is having awareness of the feelings that arise in the mind. The third foundation of mindfulness is having awareness of the condition of the mind at any given time, that you know that for the last several hours or the last several days, the mind's been angered or frustrated. Because if you have that awareness, you won't allow it to impact all the various things that you're doing in a, in a certain day or a certain week. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is mental objects. Okay, giving an example of this. Say you had your heart set on getting a new car and you went to go to the shop, you found a new car and you're like, hey, I would like to buy this new car and I'll be back in a week and I'll get it. And the salesman says, great, we'll see you in a week. Bring your loan or bring your cash or whatever. You come back in a week and the car is gone, right? Somehow, somewhere along the line, somebody else sold it. Your salesman didn't know about it. Well, at that point, you thought you were going to get all this pleasure from the new car, right? And you were looking for that pleasure. But now your new car is not there. You're angry. And usually the mind doesn't just become instantly angry unless you're not practicing these teachings. It's going to potentially instantly become angry. And now, what do you mean? You sold my car, right? And you're creating all kinds of unwholesome results because of your wrong speech. But if you start slowing the mind down and you have awareness of mind, you can feel the bodily sensations and you cut it off there. And now you can have a very wholesome conversation and perhaps the dealership down the street has the same exact car and it's just a matter of an hour or two after they research the computer, then you can have your car. But if you go off with hostility and anger, you're never going to find that out. Nobody wants to deal with you because we're, we're too angry, right? So catching it at the bodily sensations is the best. But then if it comes to the mind, if we don't catch it there, it comes to the mind and we start having feelings of anger. And now it starts affecting our speech, starts affecting our actions, starts affecting the things that are going on. And now we start producing unwholesome results through our speech or our actions. 
Well, we can still catch it there sometimes. Maybe you slip up and you say something mean to the salesman and you say, you know what? That was rude of me. I shouldn't have said that. I'm really sorry. Let's start over. So you don't have my car. Is there another car that we can find? Right. You can maybe cut it off right there at the feelings and then you can get through that situation and it gets resolved. No big deal. It's over. But if you don't catch it in the feelings, now you let it go and you go and you talk bad to the salesperson. And next thing you know, you go home, you're angry, you talk to your partner, your kids, you go to work the next day, you're angry to your coworkers. Now you're creating all kinds of harm in the world. You're talking to people bad and harsh and hostile just because you didn't get your car, right? Now it's starting to affect the condition of the mind and it's not just that one situation anymore, it's multiple situations that it's affecting you. Well, now that situation leads to another one and another one and another one and another one. In two months, three months, six months, a year, two years, now you form the mental object of ill will. Now you're always angry, always frustrated, always irritated, always hostile because of this mental object of ill will that's in the mind. And now this has got to be eradicated because it's affecting your life and your relationships. So these are the four foundations of mindfulness that you have to develop as part of right mindfulness. Uh, thanks, teacher, for the guidance. Uh, no more questions for now. Okay. Anything from you, James or Manal? No more questions on the streaming platforms today, David. Okay. So as you guys see this topic of what is enlightenment or Nibbana, hopefully you have a clear understanding of what enlightenment is. And perhaps you can just quiz yourself right now. What is enlightenment? Hopefully what you're thinking is a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that's permanent, right? It's the eradication of craving, anger, ignorance, a knowing of true reality, the realization of non-self, and the dissolving of the ego, right? That is enlightenment. And there's this path to helping you get to this enlightened mental state, where it's not just this intellectual learning, it's reflecting and also practicing to change the condition of the mind. The Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment. These are the teachings that you need to train the mind on this path to enlightenment. I'm going to start off next Sunday with the three universal truths and the four noble truths, which is the very beginning of the path. If you were in those talks that I've done previously about this, great. This is going to be a nice review for you. You can't hear the teachings about the three universal truths and the four noble truths too much. It's not possible. You really need to deeply understand these so you can deeply practice them and gain the wisdom to understand these. If you've never been in any classes with me ever, and this is your first class or you've just started in the last couple of weeks, excellent, because next week is the real start of this path and it'll really help you to start establishing what we call right view. And having established right view, you will then be able to progress on the rest of this path. Without understanding the three universal truths and the four noble truths, you would never be able to attain enlightenment. Those are the essential, essential teachings of this path. Without knowing those two teachings, the three universal truths and the four noble truths, you would never be able to attain enlightenment. And that's why 
it's so critical that you understand those and deeply understand them and you can't really hear them enough. And then the week after that, we're going to be teaching the Eightfold Path, which again, you couldn't hear that enough. You need to deeply soak that into the mind. So we're going to go through and teach that in just one session. So the next two Sundays are really important. If you don't attend class live, be sure that you hear the playback or you listen to the podcast and understand the class content from these two classes because these are really core fundamental teachings of this path. Then on Wednesday, as a few days from now, we're doing the part four of our four-part series on loving-kindness meditation. Loving-kindness meditation is what eradicates that ill will, that fifth fetter, or that second poison, that anger, hatred, ill will. That's what you need to do to cultivate and eradicate that ill will. So that's why we're teaching that on Wednesdays, and we'll do that this Wednesday coming up. The following Wednesday, we're going to be teaching Buddhist chanting so that you'll understand the chanting. And we'll have four sessions of that to build up your practice of chanting, breathing mindfulness meditation, and loving kindness meditation. These are kind of like the core fundamental teachings to practice on a daily ongoing basis. Chanting is not something that's required as part of the path. So you may decide to learn it and practice it for a bit and then decide you're not interested in continuing it. It's not required. But if you learn it and you practice it and you gain benefit from it, then great, you can use it. But it's not something that would be required as part of the path. But I'll talk about that a week and a half from now about what all the benefits are and how it will actually help you. So between now and either Wednesday or next Sunday, if you haven't already read chapter three, be sure that you read chapter three. Feel free to listen back to this class again if you like, because it's on Facebook, YouTube. It'll be on the podcast by Tuesday. Or you can also listen to the classes of chapter three that I taught previously. There's two previous YouTube videos or two previous podcasts where I talked about this same topic, but I talked about it in a little bit different way. So you might want to either review this class or you might want to review one of those classes and kind of hear different questions that came up at those times. So thank you for joining. I really appreciate that you guys are so interested in learning these teachings and diligently applying your time, effort, energy, and resources to learning and practicing these teachings. I realize these classes sometimes can go beyond two hours or hour and a half or an hour, which we're not always used to. But part of this training is to train the mind to be focused and concentrated and clear in all situations. So having these a little bit elongated classes like this can kind of challenge the mind to be more concentrated. So if I just did like 30 minute or one hour classes, you're kind of used to that. You've kind of done that in different settings, but it's kind of challenging the mind a bit to focus and be concentrated for two hours or two and a half hours. And that's a really good thing to improve your concentration and your focus during these classes. So I really acknowledge your diligence and your determination to learn and practice these teachings. So thank you for that. I'll see you in the next class, either Sunday, Wednesday, or perhaps Saturday, if you're participating in the Polycanon and English study group. 
Until then, have a really wonderful rest of your day and the rest of your weekend. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.